text itself, the passage itself, will fill much of this sermon as we look at Stephen and his martyrdom, his speech and then his martyrdom. This speech from Stephen takes up more space than any other sermon in the book of Acts. More space than Peter's sermons, more space than anything Paul delivers. And it doesn't mean that this sermon was the longest in actuality. What it means is that Luke has given this sermon the most space in the book of Acts. Sadly, sadly, some have looked at this in this long sermon from Stephen, at least comparatively long, and made some wrong conclusions. They have wrongly characterized this sermon as rambling or irrelevant. The famous playwright and philosopher George Bernard Shaw, in his preface to Dracules and the Lion, called Stephen a quite intolerable young speaker and a tactless and conceited bore. The German theologian Debelius spoke of the irrelevance of most of this speech. Sadly, these men have missed what Luke and Stephen and, most importantly, God is saying through this passage. These words are chosen wisely by Luke. The words and the message by Stephen are chosen wisely, and ultimately God has chosen wisely to give us this section of Scripture. And so it is not a rambling message. It's a very important message. We know because Luke has given so much space to it that it functions very importantly and powerfully in this story. Think of it this way in in terms of how we would approach this longer speech in Acts. Can you imagine a very wise and thoughtful person that you know that you respect greatly? And in every other context, that person has always spoke economically with their words. They've always chosen their words carefully and in, in such a way to make a point without wasting words. And this person invites you out to coffee one morning and at coffee over an hour's time speaks the whole time uh, as they talk to you about the proper use of money, say, or some other topic. The whole time just emphasizing what Scripture teaches about money. Do you think it might be wise to conclude from that conversation that maybe I should listen to this person and maybe there's something in my life about money that needs to be addressed? And certainly in a normal situation, we would ask. We wouldn't walk away thinking, oh, that guy Jim is just such a tireless bore. He goes on and on all the time. We wouldn't do that because we would understand that our friend is a thoughtful, wise friend. And so if, if he has given, he or she has given that much time to this topic, then we need to listen That's the same thing here in Acts. God, Luke, Stephen, all reliable, all reputable. So when the book of Acts gives uh, an entire chapter almost to a sermon, then let's not skip over it saying, now it's just rambling. Let's try to listen. Let's try to understand. Is there something we need to understand from this? With that in mind, let's pray and ask God to speak to us because ultimately we want to be attentive to the Lord and listen to him. So, Lord, we thank you for this section of Scripture. And, Father, I ask you to help us to understand and to hear you in it and to respond to you. Lord, forgive me, forgive us for any time that we have looked at your word and and thought, well, this is just rambling, for you don't waste words in Scripture. 
You're wise and you're gracious and you love to speak to us to impart life to guide us, to direct us, that we might live in you, enjoying you and magnifying your name and serving your people and your purposes. So, Lord, would you speak to us now? Not because we're worthy, but because Christ is worthy and has won our forgiveness and our acceptance. And now you love us wholly and fully as you love your Son. And you've welcomed us into the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. So speak to us. Transform us, lead us on, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit of this section and then talk a little bit about that, and then we'll continue on. Um, So I want to start in verse 8 of chapter 6 and kind of get the context of Stephen and what's going on, and then we'll move on into the rest of chapter 7. And this sermon will be a little different than others in that a lot of the time we'll be listening to Stephen himself as recorded in Scripture. So starting in verse 8, it says, uh, it already introduced Stephen earlier. Last week we heard about that. Verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We'll stop there. So Stephen, we've met Stephen. He is most likely a Hellenistic Jew. We learned last week that that is a Jew whose primary language and culture, uh, to a significant degree at least, is is Greek, not Hebrew, not Jewish. They're still good Jews. and, and, And we learned last week that a number of these had come to Christ. And they were from that culture. Stephen most likely is from that culture as well. And God's using him powerfully. This man actually is, is a, a, a deacon-type leader in, in chapter 6, early on. And he's being used powerfully by the Lord. There's signs and wonders that God's using him to perform among the people. And just something to recognize that signs and wonders are not something limited to apostles. Uh, we have Stephen as an example, and, and others, others as well. So he's operating in the power and in the Holy Spirit, and, and he's effective. But as he's effective, he's having an impact. And, and the Hellenistic Jews, who are not Christ followers, from this synagogue, there might have been more than one synagogue, it was a Greek, a Hellenistic Jewish synagogue, the, the, the Hellenistic Jews, who later on in the story of Acts will be a major problem for Paul as well, the Hellenistic Jews get upset. And they, they oppose him, and they accuse him. He's accused 
of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they seize him. They get others stirred up. They get the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council stirred up. They bring him. They have false witnesses. And they say, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So they're making accusation that he's speaking against God. He's speaking about Moses, against Moses. He's speaking against the law that Moses gave. He's speaking against the temple. These are all things at the heart of Judaism at the time. The land and the law and the temple. And so these are serious accusations. And, and if you were listening as we went through, there really the same sort of accusations made against Jesus, right? In his trial. Stephen is accused of the same sort of things. And in reply, Stephen gives this speech. And to George Bernard Shaw and Dr. DeBalius and others, it seemed like a rambling speech, but it's not. It's a very wise speech. It's a biblical theological speech. And all that means is biblical theology is, is looking at the truths about God in line with the story of the Bible. And so he gives a reply in line with the story. He tells the story. And through telling the story, he makes his defense against these specific accusations. So in a minute, we're going to read through his defense. So let's keep in mind the accusation. The accusation is he's speaking against this land and this temple. He's saying something about the land and temple don't matter. He's making... Uh, he's, he's making an offense against the accusation that he's somehow speaking against Moses. He's opposing Moses. We're the guys. We're the faithful ones. We're faithful to the temple and Moses. He's an anti-Moses guy. And, and, and ultimately through that, he's speaking against God. And so with those things in mind, with those accusations in mind, Stephen makes this speech and he addresses and answers the accusations and then does some things in the speech that's more than just defending himself. He starts to speak prophetically in a powerful way over the Jewish leadership and establishment. So let's listen to Stephen as he answers. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession, and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. 
Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver, had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended their oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and and Redeemer, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our brothers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. 
as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord Do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The Word of God in Acts chapter 7 and surrounding. What a story. What what an amazing story. What a tragic story aspect, tragic part of the story in many ways. There's a lot going on here. A lot that Stephen's saying here. There's a lot going on in this passage 
in Stephen's interaction with the ruling council, but there's a lot going on in this passage that is more than just that interaction. There's a lot going on in this passage that speaks to really historical things, even redemptive historical things, things that are key turning points, not just in the story of Acts, but key turning points in the history and the story of salvation, what God's doing in the earth. So let's take some time to to get into this and to, to learn a little bit from it. I hope as we read through, you were still thinking of the accusations made against Stephen, the things that they were saying against him about his speaking against the land and the temple and the law and Moses and God himself. And, and what Stephen did in that speech is he answered all those accusations and then went a step further and turned the tables and said, the ones on trial, actually, the one on trial is not me. You are on trial. You are on trial before God. And, and I think they got that, and that's part of why they responded that way. So, so he spoke about the land. Did you notice in the story where the majority of the story was, took place? Was it in Israel, around the temple? Where did the stories tend to circulate? They were on outside of the land, right? The time when God showed up, and God manifested himself to, to Abraham, to Joseph to Moses, where? Outside of Israel. The glory of God appeared to these men outside of Israel, not in Israel. Now he's not trying to say there's something wrong with God appearing in Israel. He's just saying, look at the story. God isn't centered on geography. God's not thinking all my purposes are about this square mile here on top of this mountain. Everything is focused on this. No. God works beyond and outside of geography. The important thing in Scripture is not where, but who. It's God appearing in His glory to His people. That's what it's about. Now, there are, there are things God does with geography. It's, it's important, but it's not the core. The core in the story is God revealing Himself in His glory to His people and His people responding. And He's saying, guys... It's not about the temple and the land. Those things are secondary. It's about God and His glory revealing Himself to His people and His people responding. Now, it's interesting, in the, in the sermon that Stephen gives, he doesn't, doesn't talk much about Jesus. He alludes to Jesus. But there's a lot being inferred in what he says. And, and, and Stephen, I imagine, in his preaching, was, would usually make those connections and the, and the connection here is that, that they've been fixated on the temple and the land and they've missed the point that it's about God revealing His glory and us responding to Him. And they have made the ultimate error when God revealed His glory in the, in the most complete and fullest way in His Son. When He showed Himself in the revelation of His Son, there was a response expected to the Son, and they missed it because of the temple and the land and their misunderstanding and their hard hearts. They missed it. God is not focused on geography and and buildings. He wants to reveal Himself, and He's revealed Himself in Christ. He wants us to see His glory in Jesus Christ and respond to it. That's the center of these things. He answered their accusation against Moses in the law. 
He spent quite a lot of time, actually, on the life of Moses. Do you notice the story slow down in the life of Moses? And he certainly made the point that Moses encountered God outside of Israel. The, the place when he, at that burning bush, God said, Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. It's not the temple. It's outside. This is holy ground, and that's certainly important. But then he does something else in the story of Moses. He three times talks about the people rejecting Moses. Three times. First, there's Moses at the age of 40, a young man of 40. Makes me feel good. Um, and he's in Egypt, and he's been in Pharaoh's household, and he, go, he, he visits his people, and, he, and he, he wants to intervene. And he wants them to understand, I've been sent by God. Moses had some self-awareness of his call to be redeemer, probably just deduced from the fact that, look, I'm, I'm brought up in Pharaoh's household and I'm a Jew. God must be doing something. He, he seeks to intervene, and he hopes that they'll see that God is bringing salvation from Egypt through him. And what happens? Who are you? You're going to kill me like you did that Egyptian? And they reject him. They reject him, and he goes off into the desert. Forty years later, he comes back. And if you follow along through Stephen's story and the biblical story, he goes back, sent by God, and he comes and he talks to Pharaoh, speaks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh rejects Moses, we would expect that, and then imposes harsh labor on the Jews, right? They have to make bricks without straw. And then what do they do to Moses' leadership when that happens? They grumble and they reject his leadership again. Then Moses takes them out of Egypt and the power of God with signs and wonders, these, these powerful demonstrations of God's presence and power with them, just amazing things. They go out of the desert, out, out of Egypt into the desert, uh, experience the power of God in their midst through Moses, and then Moses goes up the mountain and what do they do again? They reject him. Who's this? We don't know where he went. Come on. Let's make an idol. Let's make a God out of gold and follow this God. So Stephen highlights their rejection of Moses three times and their hard-heartedness. And he says, Moses said there'll be one after him, the prophet that you are to listen to. So he makes a connection. The ultimate Moses is Jesus. And guys, guess what? You've not only rejected Moses historically, but you've just rejected the ultimate Moses. Your track record is very troubled. Now, elsewhere, when Peter shared that first sermon, he said some of the same things. And we know as we went through that, what happened? The people were cut to the heart. We blew it. What should we do? And they repented. But this story is so different, isn't it? Sadly, there's no, we blew it. They reject what Stephen says. Stephen points out that they've blown it. They, historically, they had rejected Moses. And they were just like their fathers who rejected Moses and made a golden calf. They made an alternative God, rejected the real God. And the result was tragic. And God, God is speaking through Stephen to indict them for their rejection of God, for their rejection of their Redeemer Jesus, in line with the people's rejection of Moses historically. And then he finishes the sermon addressing the temple. He talks about the tabernacle. We have the tabernacle. We were sojourners. 
And then in the time of David, he wanted to make it, but actually it was Solomon who made it. And then they made this temple, and he doesn't comment on the temple. I don't think he's trying to say the temple, anything wrong with the temple. He's just trying to, trying to help them understand, get some perspective. And then he quotes Isaiah 66. Let me read that. Isaiah 66. This is a prophetic message from Isaiah to a people who had rejected God's purposes for them and thought perhaps if we can just do the sacrifices right and do the temple right, you know, maybe, maybe God and God should love us and God is addressing them in their heart. And he says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. I don't live in a house. I'm not limited to a house. I'm the God of glory. There's no place you can make for me to dwell. Get your eyes off of fixing, fixating on the temple and see my glory. And then in Isaiah 66, they would have known the rest of it. These guys would have memorized probably the entire Old Testament. It says right after this, after God says, Where is the place you will, where is the place you will create for me? He says, But this is the one to whom I will look. There's no place that contains me. I'm great. I'm glorious. There's nothing. that. There's no house for me. But this is the one. This is, this is where I show up. This is where I dwell. This is where the infinite God who cannot be contained in a temple, this is where He dwells. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's where God dwells. He doesn't dwell in a building. He doesn't dwell in in some land per se. He dwells with the one who who sees his glory and is humbled before it and realizes he is great. I'm a sinner who's contrite in spirit, recognizing I am weak. I am lowly. I'm a sinner. I need a redeemer. And who trembles at his word, who, who sees his glory revealed in his word and says, I'm in trouble on my own. I need your mercy. I need your help. That's the place where God dwells. Not in a building. And it's just so sad. It is just so tragic. They missed it. And we need to understand, even as Stephen prophetically under the Lord, is indicting the Jewish leadership and judging them. And there are apparently irrevocable consequences for that judgment. Even as he does that, his heart is broken over their hearts. Jesus wept for Jerusalem. I don't understand how God can do those things. He's perfect. He's infinite. He's glorious. He can both be the judge who says, enough judgment to these who have murdered my son and rejected my purposes, and yet be heartbroken. So as I read the story, I was just just taken back by the sadness of what's going on. As they rush at Stephen... Stephen looks up 
And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and many understand this, I think, it, it, properly to an extent, that he's standing up to receive Stephen in his love for Stephen. I think that is part of it, but I don't think that the, the con- fits the context the best. I don't think it's the whole picture. When, when you stand before a throne, um, there's, there's things going on legally. There's things going on in terms of being a king. Jesus is the king at the throne. He is standing, and in that culture at the time, you stood in witness as a judge. And Jesus is standing saying, Stephen is my true and faithful witness, and I stand with him, I receive him, and I stand against you and your rejection of me. They understood that. They understood what Stephen was saying. They understood him calling Jesus the Son of Man, the fulfillment of that term from Daniel and Ezekiel. They understood what he was proclaiming, and when they heard it, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. They shouted and stopped their ears. They grabbed Stephen, and they dragged him out of the city, and they stoned him like a crazy mob, not the rulers of a nation. And we meet a new villain in the story. His name is Saul. He is a villain. He approves of the, per- of the execution, and then he goes and he ravages the church. He is a villain in the story. And we are not to mistake that. This is just an amazing story. It's all true. George Lucas holds nothing in comparison with this story. And Luke masterfully tells us this story. That we might understand what God's doing and we might understand His purposes, His ways. That we might learn truths from this story. That we might learn lessons ourselves to apply to our life. So let's spend the remaining five minutes talking about some lessons. And I encourage you to really read the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews in some ways is the same sort of thing Stephen was doing. It's a letter to the Hebrew Christians as they lived in that area, as they lived amidst um, people like the council, as they lived under this pressure, and as they felt pressured to return to this really empty Judaism that was never meant to be. So the book of Hebrews is written for them, calling them to Christ, calling them to the fulfillment. As well, Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's explanation of the rejection of the Jews, the judgment on the Jews and the result. And Paul makes application from there. So if you want to read and study further, I recommend read through the book of Hebrews, read Romans 9 through 11. And Paul in Romans 9 to 11 explains things and makes some great application. I'm going to spring off of a few of those things, but I, but I cannot touch that, the depth that he answers in one sermon and certainly not four minutes uh, as well. But let's make some application. Let's learn from this. First lesson, I think, is that we must love the giver, not the gifts. We must love the giver, not the gifts. We certainly can appreciate the gifts, but we must love the giver, God himself. We must recognize that the greatest gift is not not what he gives us, not the land, not the temple, not 28 Chadwick Street, not riches, 
Not even the gifts, as important as they are, of people. And I don't mean to take away from that. Sure, we're to love one another. We know that's clear. We're to appreciate the gifts of one another. But ultimately, to recognize the giver as the center. And knowing Him and enjoying Him and, and beholding Him and His revealed glory and worshiping Him and following Him, that is the center of our lives as Christians. Not these other things. And we must be constantly diligent to not allow the gifts to supersede the giver. Lest we make the same error that the Jewish leadership did and miss God, the giver. Not the gifts, not the memories, not things. Not even the good old days when God did this and that. God himself must be the one who is our joy. God's been speaking to me about this personally lately, and I've recognized that in some ways that I've allowed the gifts, I've allowed what he's doing and, and to take precedence or to overshadow him, himself. And he's called me back to just worship. And so I've been spending time in my prayer times, uh, not only asking him for things, but actually making more room just to worship, just to remember his goodness and his glory and give him praise. And in light of this, I've felt for us as a church, I want to make sure we keep the giver at the center and so one thing I'm thinking about, we're talking with the leaders about this, is in the fall. I've been wanting, we've been wanting for a while to offer some regular uh, Christian growth classes. And so we're planning and hoping to do that. We're going to talk with you guys as well about that. But in the fall to offer something once a month, to, to possibly target care group twice a month, and then once a month we meet here. And we meet here to be trained in, in the, the truth of Scripture in, in understanding our Bibles. But before we break to do that that evening, my hope is that uh, we'll, we'll spend about an hour in class, but before that, we'll take time each month, 45 minutes or so, just to worship and pray without a strong agenda. Not that we won't have any agenda, but to have the agenda of just being with God, remembering His goodness, celebrating His grace, worshiping Him, keeping the giver at the center, not the gifts. So please be praying as we seek to implement that. We'll be talking about that some more. First lesson, let us keep the giver at the center, not the gifts. Second, Paul talks about this in Romans 9 through 11. Let us recognize that we belong to him, that we belong to him by his grace. That for those of us, I know that we have some Jewish believers, what a wonderful heritage, but for most of us, we are from the Gentiles. We are not the historic people of God. And God has allowed some hardening and worked some things sovereignly, and there have been branches, in a sense, broken off, Paul talks about in Romans. The Jewish leaders were meant, his, God's desire was that they would stay in Him and receive Christ. They didn't. They were broken off, and, and their Part of God's response to this and part of God's response to this judgment is to start to go to the nations. Now, he doesn't forget about the Jewish people, but there's a turning point in the book of Acts here. You see in the story, all of a sudden, the focus, the center point of his action is no longer around Jerusalem. And it looks like they don't ever see a harvest like they had seen again. The church continues to exist, continues to do okay, eventually gets dispersed. The shift 
there's a shift here from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then the shift really, the center in many ways of the church becomes Antioch. And God in His sovereignty, He, he brings judgment, He starts to turn the shift towards the Gentiles, He still has the, His Jewish people on His heart, there's still a remnant, and there's promise in Romans of a final day, of an ingathering of the Jews, and that should be our hearts. Their branches were broken off. Judgment was brought. And God in His mercy grafted these Gentile, these wild olive branches, you and me, into the tree. We have no heritage to claim. Only the mercy of God. And as Gentiles, we must be thankful and grateful that God has had mercy on us. Can you imagine what it would have been like if the gospel hadn't gone to the Gentiles. Have you studied Western history if you were from the West? That's my background, Celtic. Before the gospel penetrated those cultures, do you know what they were like? Even the best of the, the pagan cultures, the Romans, it was brutal, empty, dark. My ancestors did human sacrifice, worshipped demons, lived hopeless. The gospel has come to my culture, our culture, and blessed our cultures and changed our cultures. And there's so much blessing. There's so much blessing in Western culture. Now there's wrong. I don't mean to say everything's good. But there's so much blessing that has come either directly or indirectly from the gospel in God's mercy and in our own lives. What amazing mercy that we are included in Christ, that God has turned to the Gentiles in great mercy and brought them in. And so we must never take our salvation for granted. We must remember it is amazing mercy of God that He would do this. We don't understand all the ways of God. We trust Him in His wisdom. The part of what happened in the shift of the stories, He started to to reach the Gentiles. And we are here in Christ because of this. I, I, I can't, I shudder to imagine what it would be like to still live in Celtic culture human sacrifice, barbaric, worshiping demons. And, 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 I, and I, even in a culture that's been affected by the gospel, I was not much better than to be rescued by Christ. So let us not, let us not ever take it for granted. Let us not ever have an entitlement attitude towards our salvation. Let us be thankful, God, so much that you have had mercy on the Gentiles, that you've brought us in, And, O Lord, would you have mercy on your Jewish people and give them hearts to understand and know you. As the band comes up, and we conclude, just an application springing off of that one. We all drift. Part of what went on in Israel is they drifted. There were times of national revival. There were times of of great response and, and enjoying the Lord. Think of the dedication of the temple and just what a sight. God fills the temple. The glory is there. The people are worshiping. They're loving the Lord. And then, then not that long after that, they go in and they drift away. We, like them, will drift. And it... And in a room this size, knowing who we are, knowing who I am, I'm sure that many of us have drifted perhaps quite far. 
And the call of God is to come back. To come back. Come back to Him. Come back to Christ. Come back and remember what it means to have your sins forgiven. Remember what it means to be included in God. To have Him as your Father. To have His justice, His just wrath turned away and have Him to treat us as sons and daughters, beloved. Remember that. Come back. If you continue to drift, the danger is you will be under the same judgment. Jews were. Now I believe in eternal security. I think Scripture teaches us, like we heard earlier, if you're in His hands, you'll never be cast out. But those that belong to Him will not keep on drifting. So come back. And if you were in that place, we would love to pray for you. And also want to encourage you, part of what the church exists for is to be a means of God's grace to you in your life. We meet in small groups. We meet for Sunday worship. We have teaching, training, just we meet to hang out together. All these means of grace are meant to keep us at that place of fellowship and fruitfulness and blessing to the community and the world as well. So perhaps today, that would be you. We would love to pray for you. We have in the bulletins a green card, and you are welcome at this point as we conclude with worship. And thank you for your patience, going a little over time today. But to take time to fill that green card out, If you are a guest with us, we'd love to hear more from you. And also, uh, for all of us, perhaps there's something in God's Word today God's speaking to you about. Uh, There's a place on your notes, which I don't... Actually, in your bulletin, you maybe make a a place. I forgot to give you notes. (laughs) They're sitting in the printer. Um, Or on that green card, just to think through response to the Lord. And as we go today, you can drop that green card with Mickey. If you are a guest, if you haven't already received the book... We'd love to give you a book on the cross-centered life, which is really about living with the gospel at the center. But uh, let's, uh, let's just quietly be before the Lord, take a minute to consider how to respond to his word, and then we'll conclude in worship.